nobody expected that the law enforcement in this country would have such a disgusting disregard for Canadian citizens. Just brutal beatings of Canadian citizens. This is Justin Trudeau's Tiananmen Square moment, as far as I'm concerned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature, and I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have Tom Marazzo, who has become quite a famous name in recent months in Canada as a result of the trucker convoy, and it's a great pleasure to have you with us, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, Tom, I tell you, this has been quite a year. First of all, let's know a little bit about Tom. Who are you? Where are you from? And uh, what's been your experience? Oh, wow. Um, I feel like I've been all over the place. The last six months have been uh, absolutely insane. I'm actually born and raised in Niagara Falls, and I spent a fair amount of time in St. Catharines as well. I came from the military. I I joined the reserves when I was very early. I was 16 years old. I was in my 17th year, so I was allowed to join after, after January. And then uh, I graduated Niagara College. I joined the regular force in 1998 as a combat engineer officer. I lived all over. You know, I've lived in Quebec. I've lived in New Brunswick. I've lived in a bunch of different postings all all across Ontario. Mm -hmm. And uh, I retired in 2015 medically from the military. And uh, I went back to school. I did a software degree. And then as soon as I finished the software degree, I was teaching at Georgian College in Barrie. You know, the mandates came out. And I pushed back really hard and uh, I I sent an email to the president of the college and as many faculty and deans as I could find and uh, basically stating my my very clear objection to mandating uh, that I undergo a medical procedure of any kind as a condition of employment. Mm. And uh, within a few days, I was fired with cause. Things started to change really quickly, sold the house, moved. Next thing you know, I'm in Ottawa with a bunch of truckers. <laughs> you, know, you know, like really, yeah. So, so Tom, I, I just want to open up just a wee little bit about your your stand with respect to the to the vaccine mandate. Did, what, what was it? Just the idea of being coerced into having to take the vaccine was 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 that your objection? What was your many objections? To be to be honest, I could take the angle of just the medical aspect of this. Because mm. there's no, there's no completed clinical trials. Like this is done under something called an interim order. And the Americans call it uh, an emergency use authorization. Right. This is the, the challenge with this, is that you cannot, in either Canada or the United States, you cannot issue an emergency use authorization or an interim order if there is no alternative viable treatment to the illness that you're, you're trying to stop or prevent. But we know... We've always known that we've had very good, solid, viable treatments to COVID-19. Mm. So it made the vaccine really null and void in terms of, of the issuance of an interim order. There's no justifiable reason for only viewing this vaccine as the only option. Now, why do you issue an interim order? And that is so that you can get around clinical trials so that you don't have to have clinical trials. Mm. Now let's go over to the legal aspect of this. And I'm not a lawyer, but Mm -hmm. man, I've got a crash course in the law over the last two and a half years. Like, you know, it's insane. But here's, here's the thing about informed consent. There are laws around informed consent. They are very clearly spelled out laws. And if you violate, if a doctor violates informed consent, that's considered under the criminal code of Canada, criminal assault. Mm-hmm. So you cannot use coercion to force a patient to undergo a medical experiment, mm-hmm. nor can you use under the Privacy Act, privacy laws in this country, you cannot be forced to disclose your private medical information to anybody except you and your doctor, and your doctor can't even force you. Mm-hmm. So there are just far too many laws in this country that are meant to protect us, the public, from government overreach. And we also have the human rights legislation Yes, uh, that also protects us. Yes. And so we're, we're protected by these multiple layers of, of laws in this country. And what we had seen is that 
Now, you know, you, you've got a waiter or a waitress who is now walking around with impunity, violating the Privacy Act and asking you for your confidential medical information. Mm. You've got employers that are now in charge of your body as a condition of employment. When I was fired, I was denied unemployment insurance. But mm -hmm. it's strange because for the 35 years I paid into it, it was never a condition of paying into EI that I go and get a medical procedure that I didn't want. We've thrown out every law, every common sense aspect of, of what it means to be a free and democratic society. I just vehemently re rejected the idea that an employer felt they had a legitimate right to use coercion to force me to take a, a medical injection or a medical procedure that I did not want because there are viable treatments to it. It is not life-threatening, and we've known that it wasn't life-threatening. I mean, we're looking at a fatality rate of 0.003%. It's actually influenza is more deadly than COVID has been. Mm. So when you look at this and you put it all together, it's like you don't have the right to tell me what I, I can and cannot put in my body or should or should not put into my body as a condition of employment. What blows my mind is the number of academics uh, at the college that I belong to that actually came out very aggressively against me. And it just goes to show you the, the lack of critical thinking as on you know supposed educators that pride themselves on critical thinking or teaching it, but they can't exercise it. Were there no allies in your cause there at the college? There was about 25 uh, that finally came forward were in a telegram group, but they are unknown to the, the college. I was the one who stuck my neck out because I felt that I had a, I have, you know, my army pension at the time. So I was, I was less vulnerable than the other members of the group that I was in. And at the time I sent the original letter, there was only five of us. But after I sent out the letter, we grew to a total of, of 25. And, and how large is that faculty? Sorry. It's not the biggest college. It's not the smallest college. But I, you know, even in my original email I sent out, I think the faculty is somewhere around 600. And I was only able to reach 250 people on my original email. Of that 250, within, I think, an hour, the college had pulled my email down from the server. So I didn't reach that many many, many people were denied all of their exemptions. One case, one of the exemptions were for religious exemptions. And the, the VP of HR actually quoted the Pope himself as a reason to deny this person's religious exemption. Which totally goes against established law in this country. I mean, yes. it's always been the freedom of the individual, not the church yes. or the religious yes. community they belong to. Yes. I look at collectively across every institution that that tried to implement these mandates. Now, what's really interesting, too, is you've seen what the government of Ontario and the chief medical officer a few months ago was was basically passing the buck. You know, it's a, it's a hot potato, right? Mm -hmm. So Doug Ford says, well, it wasn't me. It was my chief medical officer. My chief medical officer, you know, I, I, I couldn't dare go against him. It was political suicide to go against my my chief medical officer. Okay. Then the chief medical officer came out and said, well, we never actually created legislation to force you to do it. It was the employers that did it, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, all right, who, who's in charge around here? Who got elected yeah. to, to make these decisions? It, it's just complete abdication of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And it's disgusting. And in Ontario, unfortunately, Ontarians had the lowest voter turnout in Ontario history. And they re-elected Doug Ford with an overwhelming majority. He actually earned, I think, 20 additional seats than he had previous to the election. People in Ontario were absolutely entirely too lazy to take any actual steps to maybe put an end to this guy. I wonder if it's also a situation, because we had such a low turnout, people are losing trust in the institution. And that, that to me, is a very worrying sign. I think that we've lost trust in every single institution within our society. Education, is, as far as I'm concerned, even look at any of the, listen to a guy like Jordan Peterson talk about mm -hmm. the education system in this country. And of course, he was a U of T professor. Police 
Look at the courts, look at medicine. Even religious institutions have completely abandoned their followers, right? Mm-hmm. And this is all based on fear. And you'll never convince me that the mainstream media or the, the liberal-funded media was ever to be trusted. Yeah. And uh, I just recorded a, on my YouTube channel a, a video about mainstream media and how I feel about them and what they've done. I think one of the worst institutions that we have in this country, the, the very megaphone that Justin Trudeau has used to, to rip this country apart, has always been liberal-funded media. Maybe it's not fair to say liberal-funded media. Let's just say government-funded media because the CBC is, is one of the worst. They're funded by taxpayers. They have been funded by taxpayers since their inception. We've got a very terrible relationship with the legacy media in this country. They were known as what we call the fourth branch, or at least they called themselves the fourth branch, right? Because yes. um, for our viewers out there, we often think about government as being three branches, the judiciary, the executive, meaning yeah. the prime minister and the prime minister's office and the legislature. And yes. then the media would claim, well, we're the fourth branch because we keep everyone accountable. And the reality is what we've seen over the last couple of years is no one's held accountable. It's incredible how the media has just totally taken up the government narrative and ran with it. Yeah. And there's, there's this perverse relationship between the executive branch right now and the media in terms of like, I don't view the, the legacy media as, as journalism. I view it solely as propaganda. There's a message out there that the government of Canada wants to push forward. And since they control the budget or the the subsidization of a lot of the government-funded media, they're going to get in line. And, and if they know what's good for them, they're going to, to keep pushing this narrative, this story. And they are going to do their very best to steamroll anybody who has any opposition or even calls out the media for being liars. And and right. over and over and over again, you're seeing these stories in the mainstream media, even about the convoy, that have all been proven to be false. What's interesting to me is that it is alternative media that is exposing the mainstream media for being the liars that they are. How did you get to be involved with the convoy yourself? I had moved the, the mother of my daughter she answered a Facebook post to do a play date between two kids. And so we went to uh, this play date. We, we met the parents of the other child. We hit it off really, really well. Very like-minded. The, the husband introduced me to another person. This other person, and I, and I didn't know, this other person was actually connected to a group called Canada Unity. When the convoy rolled through, I got a call from this this new friend who was connected to Canada Unity and said, hey, could you take a call with a guy named James Botter and his wife, Sandy? Hmm. So I said, yeah, sure. I thought that the expectation of that meeting was just to sort of advise them on sort of the way forward now that they were in Ottawa. They've been there for two days. Uh, this is Sunday that I was speaking to them. At the end of the conversation, they said, look, would you be just willing to come here and, to Ottawa and, and give us a hand for a couple of days? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? And, and so, you know, packed a bag. Next thing you know, three hours later, I was sitting in Ottawa. Mm. It, it was that simple. And I ended up staying for 22 days. So what was your role? What, what, what was your role to help out here? Well, initially, it was really to come up with a really solid sustainment plan, just to get them so that they could live there on, in their trucks on the street for as long as it took to end the mandates. That mm. was sort of my initial thing, to make sure that that was really well organized and running smoothly so that really they, they could just sustain themselves for the duration. But then... As time sort of rolled on, I started to bring in a couple of friends who were also former military, and I passed on sort of that day-to-day logistics piece to them. And then I started to, my role started to transition where I was working with the lawyers from the JCCF more regularly. And then we started to really work with the other, the leaders of the convoy, we started to work with the city, started to look big picture. If I was looking day to day in the military, we'd say, you know, I was looking down and in, Mm. but as time went on and other people took over that day to day role, it was easier for me to look up and out because we knew at some point something had to change. We were all trying to to put together myself, the lawyers, members of the board. It wasn't just me. You know, there was there was a lot of us right. trying to come up with a, a framework or some sort of a strategy to get the ball moving or progressing down the field. Uh, so that we could all go home, but go home with 
removing these mandates and on a path to getting this country back to normal. Over time, my my role just kind of evolved towards more of a strategic picture. And so were you involved then in negotiations with uh, the city and and that kind of thing and just trying yeah, to Yeah, I was I was in those meetings. I was in a meeting with the uh, the city manager a one-on-one I had with him and then with the mayor. But with the lawyers joined in subsequently after the meeting with the the city manager. My sense was, you know, there was a lot of appetite with the the city manager, probably some of the other leadership within the city with some of the police, not all, to work together to get this done. But I, I have to say my my greatest disappointment to those efforts was always with the mayor of Ottawa. I Far too often, this man, he acts in bad faith. I would certainly never trust him if I ever had to work with, opposed to him again. Uh, members of the police uh, completely acted in, in bad faith. That was really frustrating, especially for the police liaison team that I, I routinely dealt with. I really felt bad for them oftentimes because I knew that they were working to try to resolve issues, but they had to go back to their leadership and and I think get kind of blindsided by their own leadership at times. We worked hard to make things happen that were definitely responsible all the time and safe. And they knew that. The police knew that we were trying to be safe and responsible. And I think they, they try to convey that message upwards to their chain of command. But, you know, the, the mayor of Ottawa has has federal political aspirations and ambitions. And I think he was more interested in pleasing Justin Trudeau than he was working with the truckers to resolve any of these issues in a responsible manner. There's several things that, that come out here. One is the convoy has been pilliered by the press saying uh, that it was violent, it was, or at least intimidating. People going along the streets were... Um, felt they were harassed, you know, because if they wore a mask and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And and I can tell you myself, I, I was up there for three days yeah. and, and uh, walking among everybody, talking to everyone. I mean, it was like the Winterlude Festival of Ottawa that we used to yeah. have prior to the COVID. And uh, people um, just really having a great time of uh, literally hugging each other and like meeting. It was kind of like the whole convoy experience was kind of like a safety valve that let out an awful lot of steam because a lot of people were saying, you know, here it is. I'm with people who think the same way I do. And it's it's kind of been like uh, for many people is like, is everyone on Prozac or is it just me? You know, it's, it's that kind of a thing. And and so the convoy uh, people to get together to express their frustration over the last two years with everything that was going on with the government. And, and there's been no evidence of any violence, of any inappropriateness that I could see, other than the fact that they occupied the streets, which yes. which is not a criminal offense. Yes, you know, that you're entitled to get a parking ticket or a fine or whatever, uh, but um, very, very different from what from the way the mainstream media portrayed it. And you were on the inside circle. Can you tell us, what can you tell all of us about just the fact of its nonviolent nature. I've seen all those mainstream media stories and in the government narrative, and and I watch old videos from that time last winter and stuff. And it, I have to say, it's incredibly emotional for a lot of us that were in Ottawa to go back and watch the footage of of what we were seeing in Ottawa. It's it's incredibly emotional. It's very very difficult for many of us, and. Oftentimes I see these videos where people overlay Justin Trudeau's words and then they show the video and they're absolute opposite of what's really going on, right? Yeah. And obviously these videos are meant to stir a certain type of an, a, an emotion of, yeah. of gross hypocrisy at the very least. But yeah. we were very, very proud of ourselves for the fact that we did, we did shovel the sidewalks. We provided first aid to people that were injured on the streets. Uh, We opened up safety lanes. We did feed homeless because we were getting so much food brought into the city of Ottawa just to feed the truckers. There was an excess. Mm -hmm. So instead of it going to waste, we knew that the better thing to do would be to give it to the homeless people if we could. Mm -hmm. We were doing our very best to take the pressure off of the residents of Ottawa in the places that we were located. We weren't trying to be a hindrance. We were trying to be uh, deliberately trying to be Canadians. Mm. And there's a, there's a story that I had heard 
uh, years ago when I was very young in the military and it was from our days when, when Canadians were in Germany, they were in Lahr and Baden-Baden. The, the story goes that a, a German man telling his daughter that if you're ever in trouble and you go past the house and it has a Canadian flag on it, go to that house because those people will help you. And this is kind mm-hmm. of the embodiment of, of the spirit that people had in Ottawa. It was very respectful. Like you said, you were there. It was people that were no longer afraid of their government. They weren't afraid of the police. They weren't afraid of their neighbors. They weren't afraid of physical contact with each other. There was literally no fear there. People trying to get in touch of the humanity that they know had been taken away from us by our government. This was something that we all experienced on a daily, daily basis. Now, one of the hardest things I found is if you were to walk along Wellington and look at all of the the posters and the notes and the letters that people had placed along that wall, it was absolutely gut-wrenching to read some of the stuff that was placed on that wall. It's kind of like a, a vigil that that people had placed all their letters. Yeah. And if you read it, it was it was a it was a monument to the carnage the House of Commons had basically implemented on the, to the lives of Canadians. I had only read a little bit. I couldn't. I mean, I I remember very vividly a night being out there and looking at that stuff. And I, and I was too choked up to really continue. But during the day when there were thousands of Canadians that would show up to Ottawa on weekends, you knew you were doing the right thing. You knew mm. you were doing the Canadian thing. There was no way we were going to let that guy take it away from us any further. And then, of course, there was this this perverse backdoor deal between the NDP and the Liberal government, this coalition that they had formed but had not yet made public. This is why they, they were moving all the chess pieces in behind closed doors to make it so that they could invoke the Emergency Act and, and get the support of the NDP. Canadians were standing up and wanted to be heard by a government that absolutely refused to listen to its taxpaying voters. They right. absolutely refused to listen. And here we are. And when that happened, I, I was up there on, uh, so that'd be February 13, I was there. And my last day there, I was there over two, two weekends. And then, of course, the next day, February 14, on Valentine's Day, we get the wonderful Valentine's love gift of the <laughs> Emergencies Act. Yeah. I was just amazed. I, I remember standing in the crowd in front of the the flatbed truck, you know, that was the yeah. stage and yeah. so forth. and. And I was just, you know, there with my GoPro and just taking pictures of everyone that was there and just thinking, you know, I'm part of history here. (laughs) I mean, the historical moment of being there in the crowd and there was no like everyone was being very congenial with everyone. And and I just thought, okay. So what is the takeaway? Uh, We'll come to the Emergencies Act, but but I'd like to know what your your thought is with respect to the takeaway of that experience. What has that experience meant prior to the February 14, but that experience, those weeks prior? My biggest takeaway was how absolutely disconnected from reality the government of Canada was with its own people. Like literally on their doorstep, right there on the doorstep of Parliament was... One of the most joyous Canadian events in our, in I think our history. We refer to every weekend as Canada Day One, Canada Day Two, Canada Day Three, and then the fourth was when they came in and, and beat the hell out of Canadians. You know, it was it was the a month long celebration of what it means or should mean to be Canadians again. Mm-hmm. It was the the public's deep desire to put an end to this government overreach. Mm -hmm. And to to prove to the world that we were a country worth returning to. And yet the government saw it in a completely 180 degree different way than what was really going on out in the street. Now, I believe that that's by intention. I think that they they have an agenda that they're trying to push. Um, They did everything in their power to lie, cheat and steal and, and say that we were the exact opposite of what was actually out there on their doorstep. And this is the frustrating piece of it is that so many Canadians that did not participate in, in Ottawa believe the narrative of the media and of Justin Trudeau. And that's really, really difficult for me to swallow because at least I've got the comeback. I'm on social media and I'm on pretty much every platform. And, and when people spread the narrative, the falsehoods or the lies of, of Trudeau, 
I say, well, I was there. Were you there? Because I saw it for myself. I mean, I was three horses behind when, when Candace and the other gentleman was, was run over by the horse, yeah. you know, I was standing right there when it, when it happened. And, you know, when I, and it, it, you know, to say that a bike got thrown at the horse and all these lies and it, it's ridiculous. I was standing right there when it happened. It's just the disconnect between the government and the media for what really happened. And, and the takeaway is that was done deliberately to demonize Canadians. I have to admit that I have that same opinion. I, okay. So when the Emergencies Act was invoked, what was the thinking of your group at that point? There was a, a phenomenal irony in the moment for me personally, because I was actually having coffee with Brian Peckford. Oh, okay. It was, it was literally a personal one-on-one tutorial on what the, the writers of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms were thinking at the time when they were drafting that. Hmm. And that was the moment that I had heard that Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergency Act. I'm with the last living author of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as I'm learning that our Charter of Rights and Freedoms have now been thrown in the garbage. Wow. It was a really incredible moment. And I mean, I remember looking at Premier Peckford and seeing the look on his face. And he just said, I I didn't think the guy would do it. He did it. And we knew, obviously, that they had gone to that length, that uh, the, the situation had fundamentally changed. We didn't understand the level of violence that the law enforcement was going to bring. We had a good idea, but the the sheer level of violence that was was put on to Canadian unarmed citizens, and, and in particular, like obviously I'm a veteran, so uh, so I have a particular bias against vet or for veterans. But when you see what the law enforcement did on the steps of the National War Memorial to combat veterans of this country, Chris Deering is a friend of mine. He's part of Veterans for Freedom. Chris was almost killed. His LAV three hit an IED in Afghanistan, and it, his LAV was propelled a hundred feet into the air. Wow. Flipped over. Two of two of his friends were killed immediately. It flipped over. The turret fell out. Chris fell out of the vehicle, and then the vehicle hit the ground. And luckily, nothing landed on Chris. But he broke several bones in his body, including his his hip. Was taken to the ground and beaten by police officers in Ottawa. Arrested, and then Incredible. they put him in a car. They put him in a car and they drove him out into the middle of the country, 20 kilometers away and kicked him out of the car in the, in the freezing winter. You gotta be joking me. No, no. And they did this to several people. This Just is what took them outside was. of Ottawa and dropped yeah. them off. Yes. Yes. In, in the middle of nowhere. In no, the middle no, of how- they did this to several people and Chris was wearing his medals. And this is what the Ottawa police, the RCMP and the OPP did to Canadians on that day. Nobody expected that the law enforcement in this country would have such a disgusting disregard for Canadian citizens. You know, that's and, unbelievable. I'm sorry, but that I, I had yeah. no idea. Had no idea. Yeah. yeah. You can see all the video of them, you know, kneeing and butt stroking people, just brutal beatings of Canadian citizens. This is Justin Trudeau's Tiananmen Square moment, as far as I'm concerned. Now, I want to say something about this too, because this is a really important thing. I just characterized the worst acts that the Canadian police officers in Ottawa could have probably done. Mm. But I also want to say there was a lot of police, Ottawa police officers and OPP and other police jurisdiction that said, told their bosses, I'm not going to Ottawa. If you try to send me to Ottawa to, to turn on citizens like that, I'm going to go on sick leave or I'm taking the day off. I'm going on vacation, but do not send me to Ottawa because I won't participate in that. You know, this is an important thing because those police officers don't get to tell their story. They don't get to to talk about publicly them pushing back against their chains of command to say, no, I'm going to uphold my oath to the public right. and I'm not going to become a Nazi or I'm not going to become a, a brown shirt for you just for my paycheck. We saw terrible examples of the worst of the worst police officers, the corrupt ones, the ones that just didn't care about what they were going to do to their own citizens. We just never hear about the ones that were fighting for us from the inside. Right. Right. It's so often we, we go back and, and we uh, try to figure out how is it that a police force could be so brutal on 
nonviolent protesters. And I mean, we've seen it throughout history, right? I mean, one of the beauties of the trucker convoy, in my view, is the fact it was nonviolent. It showed the overreach of government. It showed how just by protesting, having your, your freedom of speech, your freedom of association, and all the rest of it, the concern about your mobility rights, and all of that. I mean, you have a right to protest in this country. Yes. And yes. then when you get such a violent approach, yes. it really, really, in my view, has yes. totally obliterated anything that the government ever says. And then what we have gotten afterwards and what's coming out now with the various court cases that are working their way through with the great work of uh, JCCF and and so forth, is that the government, first of all, didn't even have claiming that, okay, the police asked for this. They didn't. (laughs) And and then now we're getting more and more information about how the government didn't even have any kind of scientific basis for the mandates, which was the full reason why the truckers came to Ottawa. Yeah. It's crumbling around them. Like every, every argument that they've ever used to justify their coercion mm. has been crumbling. It's all alternative media that is putting it out there. It's, it's people investigating all this. This entire narrative is absolutely crumbling. I'm so excited for the, the public inquiry about the use of the, the Emergency Act because more of it's going to come out. It's going to be live televised. This is all going to come out. It has to come out. You know, the, the public is entitled to know what their government are doing. And right. when the mainstream legacy media won't do that, it's up to alternative media to to tell that story. And unfortunately, now what you're seeing is on the medical side, you're seeing a number of physicians that are dropping dead. And I think uh, Julie Panessi the other day tweeted, she said, by her count, we're up to 17 doctors. 17, yeah, I saw that. I think another one, yeah, another one died, I think another one yesterday that I heard about. So I think we're up to 18 doctors. How does this happen? One was a triathlete. One was a former Olympic athlete. How does this happen? It's quite fascinating. Of course, whenever, you know, an animal as it were is cornered, it gets uh, even more vicious. And I think we may see something happen here. Who knows, right? And exactly what government is going to do, but uh, there's an awful lot of interest, obviously, the government wants to stay in power until their agreement with the NDP to the yep. was it 2025 or something. You were there the the uh, right with uh, Premier Peckford, who's just a jewel of a man. And, yes. and we're so very happy to have had him during this crisis to be a, yes. such a powerful spokesperson as he is. So then it's a matter of what at that point, as far as the truckers are concerned, as far as the leadership. As I read through Andrew Lawton's account, Freedom Convoy, it seemed like, yes, okay, there was a group of people who were trying to organize things, but it's kind of like herding cats, I suppose, in some ways, right? I mean, there's many different outliers and and all the rest. But so what happens then after you're talking with Peckford? We sat down with Premier Peckford, the lawyers and everybody. We we recognized, obviously, the, the situation had fundamentally changed. We had started, it was drafted by Keith Wilson, our, one of the lawyers that was on the ground with us every single day. Another and, great freedom fighter, by yes, the way. Yes, great guy, great guy. Okay. I was with him for the majority of the, my time in Ottawa. Him and co-counsel is Eva Chipiuk. Right. We started strategizing, like the, the the number one thing is, okay, how do we take the pressure off the city? How do we take the pressure off the police? And and this was something we were actively doing previous to the emergency act. Right. But now we realized, okay, that it's not necessarily working because the every deal that we had made with the city or the discussions were now null and void because of the invocation of the emergency act. Right. And I want to point out something too, which is important, is that the city itself declared a state of emergency. Then the government of Ontario declared a state of emergency for the, the province of Ontario. Then they invoked the Emergency Act on top of that for the equivalent of parking violations. <laughs> so, right. and of course, we we have got to realize that none of yeah. this was coordinated. No, none of it was coordinated at all. <laughs> none of it was coordinated. So, you yeah. know, Keith, we, we had several discussions and that same day, Premier Peckford and Tamara did a press conference that we we opened up to the mainstream media as well. They also gave statements. That didn't seem to get any traction with the 
conservative party. So you got to think a lot of the messaging that we wanted, like, I mean, clearly the liberals aren't listening to anybody. They refused to meet. They didn't care. They were running their game plan. And unfortunately, because of this unholy alliance between the liberals and the NDP, it really neutralized the official opposition in this country. So the conservatives were powerless to do anything to stop Justin Trudeau. So Tamara and and Peckford had done the live statement. And then we started drafting something called our Roadmap to Freedom. It was a document. It was basically saying, okay, fine. Here's the plan for you guys going forward. We'll give you the plan to help this along. Tamara then publicly read this on a live stream and we had emailed it to members of parliament. I personally emailed it to Pierre Polyev. And to this day, I still have never received a response even from his staff. I requested a meeting, closed door, no media, no one had to know. I I got no response whatsoever from him. Fine, whatever. It seems that in many ways, the so-called official opposition were not very much uh, being opposed to to what was going on here. You know, an important thing to note too is that you know, Aaron O'Toole was removed by the Conservatives. I found out something recently. So middle of June, James Topp, myself and Dr. Paul Alexander got a meeting with, with federal members of parliament. What's interesting is that in that meeting, only Conservative members of parliament had the, the moral courage to attend that meeting. And one of the MPs said very clearly, he says, look, you, you may not think that you guys had support in government, but believe me, I want to assure you that you did. You know, and I'm, I'm not quoting directly, but that was the message. So mm-hmm. I know that, that conservative members were advocating for the convoy, but they were neutralized by the, the leadership majority. Uh, oh, and, okay. and Aaron, Aaron O'Toole. Aaron O'Toole was completely a liberal in, in conservative clothing. And wow. um, they got rid of him. And then Candace Bergen took over. And the unfortunate thing with Candace is there's something about her I really like. Uh, I think she's she's really good. But I was so disgusted by the fact that she went and did a photo op with the truckers in a little cafe. And then the very next day went into the commons and said, okay, truckers, you've proved your point. Now go home. It's like, wow, that that really helped nobody. You you just basically abandoned all hope that the conservatives were actually going to be an effective opposition of any kind now. Right. Uh, they were playing politics with us. And you know, it frustrates me that a lot of them are running around saying that they were they supported the convoy. Yeah. yeah. You know what? Actions speak louder than words. We put out this document, this roadmap to freedom. I read it on a separate interview. And then the second last day or the last day that I was there when I, because I was the one who announced that we would peacefully withdraw from Ottawa. I read aspects of that. And we were calling for a public inquiry into the COVID vaccine mandates. And yet nothing, there was nothing, no, no matter what we did or said, the government wouldn't send an envoy. It was like, listen, you either leave or we remove you by force. And that was it. The result was they removed Canadians by extreme force. And it's a miracle to me that nobody was killed. You know what? I was fully expecting that. I had, uh, unfortunately, I was not able to be there the day that they were working their way up from, you know, the Chateau Laurier and working on. But I had a friend of mine go and uh, he took video uh, of the horses and all the rest of it. And it was just like unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I, I was standing there when those horses came through uh, because they had made two sort of passes while I was there. And uh, it would be like trying to stand in front of a snowplow, mm-hmm. uh, thinking that you could stop it with your body. Like there was no way mm-hmm. those horses came through with such power that, yeah. I mean, it was a brilliant tactic on the part of the police. There's no way that the crowd is going to be able to withstand that that level of um, power coming through with those horses. But what people don't realize is right behind us were concrete barriers. So we were kind of getting boxed in to the point where it, w- it was getting sort of hard for the crowd to maneuver. Uh, I mean, you could have stepped over the concrete barriers and stuff. It was fine. It wasn't overly unsafe. But, you know, we were getting less and less room as the the horses were starting to come through not soon after candace had been hit by the horse i had actually left the area and went in a different direction at some point i believe that the right thing for me to do was to vacate that area um, Mm -hmm. because i noticed that myself i was starting to succumb to a little bit of mob mentality and perhaps had very aggressive thoughts of my own and realized okay the goal is to keep this 
peaceful. Right. And so I removed myself from the situation because my animal brain was starting to engage. Surely. I was standing around a bunch of other veterans and I realized that it was time for me to move out of there because I think my own personal choices would not have been very good. So I left that area. Well, you know what? That's that that says a, a lot about you, Tom. And I, I just want to compliment you on that because I can just imagine, you know, with your own training yes. um, and all the rest of it, you're so self-aware mm-hmm. that you pulled yourself away from a potential incident that would have totally affected the rest of your life and your family's life. Yes. Um, and uh, so kudos to you. And also to the entire trucker movement, because the fact that none of the leaders were engaged in any kind of violent behavior whatsoever, you showed a stark contrast between what the prime minister in his office implemented and what the truckers actually carried out, which was a nonviolent, peaceful protest. Yes. And so, I, I mean, I tip my hat to you and, and just hearing your, <laughs> your, your discussion here now is just like, you know what, way to go. I mean, that's powerful. Well, and, and we said from day one that we were a peaceful protest and we mm-hmm. proved it to everybody. We proved it around the world. And exactly. what, we, what we said, we proved it and we meant it. I'm actually in awe that there was no violence from our side as well, because it was incredibly difficult to stand there and to be physically assaulted. These people, a lot of these police, they, there were, I remember this one female police officer from the Cité de Québec. That's the uh, Quebec provincial police that were there. It was like, it reminded me of that game whack-a-mole that you would see at a carnival. This little police officer who had a full respirator on, she had this spray of pepper spray and she would just pop out from behind everybody and shoot people in the face with pepper spray and then duck behind the uh the bigger police officers again and this went on repetitively and we had medics there in the crowd and we would help people wash the uh the pepper spray out of their their eyes you know this was just disgusting just disgusting to watch and and i'm amazed myself that people said all right we're gonna beat you with non-violence that's how wow. we what a what a true testament to really the true Canadian spirit, right? I mean, that's yes. that's who we are. That's that's who our flag represents. I, I was speaking to someone the other day and they they were saying how some people that they know absolutely look at the Canadian flag and, and they're now embarrassed by it. In in other words, they they were saying that it it represents to them some form of colonialism and all of that. But but I look at it and I say, hey. I see people like yourself, Tom, and others who were nonviolent. You were following, you know, the Canadian spirit, as it were. Yeah, and that, and that's what it is. And I and I've heard these stories too, where people say, "Oh, the flag now triggers me." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on, come do better, do yeah. better, be a better citizen to this country. Right. That's it's that simple. If you're if you're triggered by something you watched on mainstream media, then do better as a citizen get more involved in your community. Embrace the idea of what it means to be a Canadian as opposed to embracing the ideas of what the mainstream media thinks is a good Canadian. It just strikes me that I I look at what the trucker convoy accomplished. And I'm just wondering if you could share what you understand to be the great accomplishments of this convoy. Well, I know that 27 other countries were inspired by the the trucker convoy and there was 27 other countrywide protests or convoys around this world i know that a a billion people on this planet were watching what the trucker convoy did in ottawa and if you look at the dutch farmers right now they've openly Mm -hmm. come out and said we were inspired by the the canadian trucker convoy in ottawa and in coots and in windsor and in bc canada found its grit again and it represented and inspired the rest of the world to stand up to their own governments Mm. and i would say ottawa was successful in the fact that they inspired we weren't you know successful ending the mandates but we inspired an idea we inspired people to find their own courage and gave them sort of a blueprint of what they could do that was effective, that they could push back against their own governments. Some countries got what they wanted, what they went and protested with their trucks and, and their all the, the resources they could bring. 
a lot of people pushed hard on their government and were successful. We just basically created a, a blueprint for what could be done across the planet. And, and for that, I think, is a, a Canada-led thing. Because for two years, people felt like they didn't know what they could do. Bridget, Chris, and Tamara, and, and a lot of the other people in the, in the beginning, Leanne Carter, you know, all these people that were involved in the beginning were the true leaders of this. I played a, a, a small part in this after the convoy had arrived. Right. But it was ordinary Canadians that made it what it was. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that you didn't stop the mandates, but I, I would beg to differ in the sense that you've got Saskatchewan, Premier Moe, right, right away, he pulled back on the mandates. Jason Kenney, yeah. um, Premier Legault over in Quebec, because he was planning on taxing uh, yeah. the unvaccinated. And it seemed that there was tremendous momentum. I think the fact that Aaron O'Toole was no longer the leader of the Conservative Party was in part a an accomplishment for the trucker convoy and that you 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 now are getting a conservative party that is willing now to stand up to the liberal party which would not have happened it seems to me we we probably would have gone through another election with an opposition that was really liberal light whereas now yeah. it's more distinguished it's i'm i'm actually working on a um on a book right now, it's entitled, the, the working title is 16 Ways the Trucker Convoy Saved Canada, but it might be 20 by the time I'm done. But even then, it could be 50 because I see that this is a defining moment in the history of Canada for the modern times. Yes. And to see the the average Canadian, I spoke with a number of people when I was up there and uh, one guy I spoke with, you know, he's lost his house, his wife lost her job too, and and they're like, okay, we have nothing else. Uh, like, we're here because we need to be here to let the world know that this is not how you treat people. Yes. And so it's it's that kind of spirit that has really, it seems to me, caused uh, an awakening yes. <laughs> uh, within the Canadian public. Now, granted, it's not everyone. Granted, there's yeah. huge numbers of people that will follow whatever the prime minister says as yeah. the gospel truth without any kind of analysis yeah. uh because he said it right and and, yeah. and it's yeah. kind of like what Catherine McKenna said you know as long as we say it over and over and over yeah. they'll believe it right yes yeah. yeah yeah and i think a lot of those people unfortunately work at georgian college in barry <laughs> i hate to say it. yeah i want to i want to point out one thing to rebel media they just put out a an hour and 15 minute documentary about the coots blockade and it, i think it's called the truckers rebellion mm. and i've watched it twice and it is excellent and i have to say like we we were very very deliberately not communicating with any of the other protests we did that deliberately because we knew that they would paint us as a national coordinating center. And that was just not true. And all of these protests around the country were all grassroots. Nobody was coordinating anything. But what was interesting to me was how effective coots actually ended up resulting. I didn't know. And I, and I was out in Alberta and I got to meet some of the participants of, of the Coots blockade. You know, I watched this documentary and I learned a lot about what they did. And I was so amazed. I was so impressed with the Coots in, in Milk River and what happened out there. Mm -hmm. These people were incredibly impressive. I watched that documentary twice. I wish that we could have publicly given more public support for what was going on in Alberta. But we were kind of, you know, we had our hands full, obviously, in Ottawa. But wow, sure. they did an amazing job there. And they're the ones who really pushed Jason Kenney to listen and to take the appropriate action. Really, really impressive what they did in Coots. You know, and, and that's that that's so great. Thank you for that. And and also, wasn't it Coots where apparently they found some armaments or, or some... Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and then, and then yeah. immediately the, the, the truckers were like... No, th this is not what we're about. And so then they all peacefully left. I mean, it, yeah. it was singing old Canada, as I remember. Yeah. The actual truth to that story is that it was a local resident who had those weapons in his home. And he had actually approached the truckers and said, hey, if this gets ugly, I've got, I've got stuff here. Wow. And the truckers got really freaked out. And they actually reported it to the RCMP themselves. And then what happened? 
the RCMP went, arrested that person, used a photograph that apparently was actually taken from a previous incident at a different time in a different location and smeared the truckers with it and said that the truckers had guns. Oh, have mercy. Outright lie. You know, and there's another thing. The We knew, I had heard the stories about how badly the RCMP went and vandalized farm equipment. They were cutting lines, removing solenoids, using spray foam insulation inside hydraulic lines, oh just doing thousands of dollars of damage to farm equipment. Like it's disgusting. And you know, I learned a lot about the RCMP when I was out in Alberta last week. And I know there's a very strong movement of Albertans. If Daniel Smith gets in as the next premier, they're going to expel the RCMP from that province and implement their own provincial police. And I absolutely agree with it. I don't think there should be federal police dominating a, a province. I think provincial police are appropriate and local police are appropriate. They need to to really expel the RCMP from that province as, as a, a major police of jurisdiction there. Their behavior since the flooding in 2013 or 14, where they went in and basically removed people from their homes because of a, a flood, an emergency, and then they went in and confiscated their weapons, their legally obtained firearms. The RCMP confiscated it from empty homes. And I spoke to several people from Alberta that told me firsthand that the RCMP went in after the fact and tossed their homes and confiscated their legal firearms. Mm. You know, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, Alberta is the place to watch. I think Alberta could really be a, a strong leader for the rest of the provinces. I think Ontario is is too far gone. I, I mean, under Doug Ford, he campaigns as a conservative, but he governs as a liberal. And unfortunately, Ontarians fall for it every time. I think in terms of provincial leadership, I think Alberta is going to be the province to watch and probably Saskatchewan as well. Tom, I, I, I want to Talk about the whole situation, the bail experience with Tamara Leach. As a lawyer, I've I haven't done much in the way of criminal law at all. Right. Talking to a lot of my colleagues about the situation and and just just observing what is expected on a bail and all the rest of it. I have some friends, uh, family who are in the police force, and they're like, "This is unheard of." Yes. Um, what's your, and, and of course you ended up being caught up into this. What's your take on what happened to Tamara? It is so unprecedented what actually happened. Most of the law enforcement people that I know too are just absolutely stunned by what had happened as well. Danny Bulford and I on the Veterans for Freedom podcast, we talked about it as well. Other police that I know, some of the lawyers were just blown away by absolute disregard for normal practices in law enforcement for handling bail uh, mm. or breach breach conditions uh, breach of conditions the story is kind of long and drawn out and there's a, a lot of irony associated with it too because Tamara had these bail conditions for which her lawyers were contesting they they actually were were appealing the bail conditions one of the bail conditions was that she's not allowed to enter into Ontario they were appealing these these conditions mm-hmm. They couldn't get into a court, but then the JCCF named Tamara as the recipient of the George Jonas Freedom Award. And just by virtue of Tamara accepting a Freedom Award, the Crown Prosecutor in Ottawa deemed her to be in violation of her bail condition. He got into a courtroom and he was seeking to have Tamara thrown back in jail just because she accepted an award of freedom. So that's the first irony. They get into a courtroom and the judge said, No, that's ridiculous. And by the way, Tamara can now. The only bail condition he changed was she could come to Ontario. Right. She's still not allowed to enter into the city of Ottawa. She was allowed. The judge knew she'd be going to the George Jonas Freedom Award. So she did. I was invited to this. Now, her bail conditions state that she cannot have direct communication with me unless in the presence of her lawyers. The lawyers are the ones who sponsored the dinner. Almost all of the lawyers from Ontario and some from from Alberta were at the dinner, including her criminal lawyer. We were surrounded by Tamara's lawyers. And I was put at the dinner table with her. I hardly had any communication with her because she was, there was too many people, too many guests of the dinner that wanted to talk to Tamara, wanted to shake her hand, take pictures with her. So she was busy that night. We confirmed with the lawyers, is it okay, you know, for, for me to be there because that's part of her condition. And they said, no, it's fine. She's in the presence of counsel. You're not here to talk about anything else. And there was even Tamara's husband was seated between us. And on the the left side of Tamara was the head of the JCCF, John Carpe. Mm. So she gave her speech 
it was a brilliant speech. She delivered it very well. And when she stepped off the stage, I just congratulated her on such a great speech. That's it. Three seconds. She sat down. And the crown tried to make the case that within those three seconds, Tamara and I plotted a successful strategy to overthrow the entire planet. (laughs) <laughs> right. Like, and then there was a, a social media picture that was posted and the crown used that to issue a countrywide, a national warrant and sent two homicide detectives to go apprehend her in her home. They brought her back to Ottawa. She spent a total of 25 days in, in incarceration. Now, the first person she went before was a justice of the peace. Like I'm qualified to be a justice of the peace. You right, don't have to go right. to law school. That's right. So you, you get this, this fool who doesn't understand the law at all and decided that she was a menace to society. But yet, you know, when we look at what happened in Alberta during the convoy, there was an incident where, you know, a man drove his car into four protesters and mm-hmm. was very next day out on bail. I mean, this is attempted murder and right. he was out on bail the next day. Tamara right. posed for a photograph, gave a speech, walked by somebody who said something kind to her. Yeah. warranted a a national warrant for her arrest okay like this is the lunacy of the this liberal government's interference in in law and again it's the overreach right it's like jumping the shark uh, like yes. it's way overdone yes absolutely overdone so she finally got be be in front of a real judge a lawyer um who basically said this is ridiculous mm-hmm. let her go let her go. And so uh, she was out on bail, obviously still same conditions, but unfortunately now they increased the amount of her surety, right? So that's put more burden onto Tamara and her surety now as a result of this. And like, let's look at the plane tickets. Let's look at the cost, all the money that the taxpayers had to absorb because this crown, or should I say clown prosecutor is a a liberal card carrying member and a donor to the, the federal liberal party of Canada. You Mm. can't tell me that this is not politically motivated. It absolutely is politically motivated. Even the attorney general of Ontario has escaped all public ire for allowing this prosecutor to go forward and do this. I mean, come on, there was no reasonable grounds that they were going to get a conviction based off of a photograph. How did this serve the public's interest Mm -hmm. to even take these actions against Tamara in the first place? It seems to me it's almost now becoming a bit of a a show trial uh, on this bail hearing, kind of like the government is saying, listen, we are letting everyone know in Canada that this is what happens If you go against our narrative, if you go against our preferred view of the world, as it were. It's absolute intimidation of the public. It is making an example. And and the beautiful thing to me, to be perfectly honest, the thing I find hilarious is that they thought that by going after Tamara, that maybe they were going to, you know, somehow break her, break her Mm -hmm. spirit or use her as, as an example of like, we could crush you. It's like, could you have picked the worst person because Tamara is hard as nails and she wasn't going to ever be defeated by the likes of this prosecutor or Justin Trudeau or anyone else. There's no way they were going to break Tamara. That's not possible. She's unbreakable. But you know, it's, it's quite fascinating when I was looking at her video uh, the night before she was arrested and how she called upon everyone to be nonviolent, treat everyone with love and to pray for the yes. prime minister. The prime yes. minister has three beautiful children, she said. Yes. He's a family yeah. man. We need to pray for him. Yes. And I thought, wow, you know, isn't that amazing? You know, while yeah. the prime minister calls the trucker convoy and obviously Tamara is, he's disgusted and all of this, yeah. Tamara is asking the country to pray yes. for the prime minister. Yes. Yes. Wow. And what, what saddens me is the number of people in this country that side with Justin Trudeau and say a lot of disgusting filth about the convoy and what they were about. Because I think by and large, the only reason Justin Trudeau can get away with what he's done and what he continues to do is because he funds the mainstream media and they just lap it up and, and regurgitate what he says. He controls 
the narrative through the media. I'm basically saying that mass psychosis, mass formation psychosis can only be made possible through the media. And it works. And it works well. I mean, George Orwell recognized this himself when he wrote 1984. Yes. But but also he recognized the, the role that the media played on convincing the public. He worked for a while with BBC during the war. Yes. And, and he understood what was happening. I mean, even the BBC, because they were trying to get the entire population around supporting the war against Germany and all the rest. And yep. he saw how the media yeah. was used as propaganda. And then, of course, he wrote that amazing novel. Yep. And this is indeed what we're seeing now. Right before us, we got to open our eyes recognize that we've got professional people there in the media and in the prime minister's office. I mean, I I, I go back to when Jody Wilson-Raybould was yeah. dismissed by the prime minister. Yeah. Then it came out how his chief of staff, uh, Ms. Telford, was was saying, well, you know, negotiations, we can we can work on getting people writing op-eds so we can support her in the media. You know, in other words, yeah. we can massage the public. That was uh, my very first clue of, okay, you know what? There's a big education propaganda project going on here yes. uh, that we have not seen to the extent that we have ever yeah. experienced in this country. And, yes. and we see it with the trucker convoy in spades. Yeah, you got to laugh at the hypocrisy of Trudeau because he he comes out as a feminist, except for when the strong women disagree with him, and yeah. then he destroys yeah. their careers. Yeah, it just amazes me how many more scandals can this guy get away with? It is truly amazing to see. I want to close with a short discussion on the public inquiry that's coming yeah. up because now Canada is going to be, we're going to be regurgitating all that went on yeah. with respect to the convoy. Any hopes, but also any concerns that you have with the inquiry? So I do have a few concerns, but I cannot discuss them openly for obvious reasons, but mm -hmm. my hopes are enormous. I'm excited for this. You can already see like, all the justification for the last six months have, have really been coming out in alternative media. I mean, even when the Emergency Act was invoked, we immediately knew that it was it was improperly being applied. There was three conditions to it, and none of them were being met. That's right. So, so that was pretty encouraging from day one, from the 14th of February. We knew that this was completely false and a misuse of a never-before act. This is all going to come out and I'm very excited about it because the intent of the, the public inquiry is to answer one question. And that question is, was the emergency act properly invoked? Yes mm -hmm. or no? And I don't mean proper in terms of, you know, the, the mechanism, but was it justifiably invoked is what, you know, a better way of, of phrasing it. It is a yes or no question. So if it's deemed that it was justifiable, which I can't comprehend how that would even be the case, mm -hmm. knowing what we've always known, I think there's going to be a lot of shock in this country. I think it will do more harm to the reputation of this country. I think international partners are going to look at this and say, okay, we've got a banana republic in, in Canada right now, and, and it's time to start doing something because this is a clearly fraudulent, corrupt result to this public inquiry. So that's one aspect. If and when, what I do believe, they will determine that, no, it was not justifiable. I think that that my personal belief and nobody else's my you know this is me me saying i believe it will result in a vote of non-confidence of of justin trudeau how can you be determined that your use of the emergency yes. act against your own people mm -hmm. and the violence that you used against your own people was was deemed unjustifiable and you're still fit to stay in office yeah. how can so I think it has to go to a vote of non-confidence. What does concern me about that is a vote of non-confidence could then be shot down by the likes of Jagmeet Singh, the NDP, and perhaps even the Bloc Quebecois. Mm. So we, we could have democracy stolen from us because of 
of people like Jagmeet Singh and and maybe the Block. Uh, and the Block are not signatures to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, mm-hmm. right? There's no there's no federal MPs from the Bloc Quebecois outside of the province of Quebec, which is a, a a province that never signed onto the Charter anyway. My concern is that they're not going to care. If we ever get to a a non-confidence vote, they might just prop up the government anyway. One of the things I found quite amazing at the uh, trucker convoy was how many people from Quebec uh, were there. So obviously the people of Quebec certainly support the convoy, at least uh, from what I observed when I was up there. There there was a phenomenally strong contingent of of Quebec truckers. These guys were, were there to win. These guys were really rock solid. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was I was really impressed by the Quebec truckers, yeah. but you know we had ones from New Brunswick. We had truckers from all over the country, but I, yeah. you know, even even the the territories had representation. So it was an all Canadian convoy, and all ethnicities as well. Listen, Tom, I just want to thank you so much for your time. But uh, is there any final word that you would like to leave to our viewers? I'm very hopeful actually for the future i you know i think all of us at one point went through a a dark period of of deep deep concern about the direction of this country but i've recently coming back from alberta i've turned a a a mental positive corner and Mm. i'm actually very very hopeful for the future of, of canada i don't feel as dark and dire as i did maybe months ago i think we're going to to see a brighter future now i i'm concerned deeply about people that are on their their third and fourth booster but in terms of those who did not partake i i'm very very hopeful for the future of this country mm-hmm. um but i do think there's a couple of dark elements that we're we're going to have to confront and and that's that's only time is going to tell on that one so mm-hmm. the public inquiry i think is going to be the catalyst of a much brighter future for canada great well thank you so much And I want to thank you for watching our program today. And you may not agree with uh, the opinions and views of our guests as well as of myself. But the thing is, here on Freedom Feature, we were wanting to have open, honest, and transparent dialogue. And thank you for being with us. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca